please turn to the book of Philippians. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 4, um, starting in verse 4. Kristen McGinnis will be teaching, or not teaching. You're not teaching today. No. Speaking, <laughs> reading. Thank you. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So this morning we continue our journey through Philippians, Paul's portrait of the Jesus life, living life with and in and for Jesus. And we're in this little section in Philippians that I'm theming around this this topic of of how we approach our inner life, how we cultivate an inner life that is in line with the Jesus life. There's a proverb that I'm focusing us on for these three weeks. It is Proverbs 4.23, where the writer says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And last week we talked about how in, in the Bible, the biblical worldview, the heart is the inner person, what we might call the core of us. And we normally think of today heart as just where our emotions come from. But biblically, it's, it's where our thoughts come from. It's where our attitudes, our values. So I would include the mind. Today we're going to talk about the mind. But it's really our core, that, that place inside from which things emerge out of our lives. It's such an important part. That the, the image is, is that your heart is the wellspring of life. And this is the image, either the, the source of a well or the source of a spring, right? So you have some underground water source that's trickling up and then it's creating this little stream that maybe becomes a river. And the idea is that's what our heart is. It's like, it's like that, right? Like everything that we do flows from our hearts, our deepest motivations and convictions and, and beliefs and emotions and all of that. It's a really important part of us. We take our hearts everywhere we go. We cannot escape them. Our lives flow from our hearts. So the passage, the encouragement then, is in light of that. So guard your heart. Stand guard. Keep watch over your heart. You want to protect it and cultivate it because you take it everywhere you go. It's so important to your life. So guard it. I came across this comic uh, a couple weeks ago um, that I thought was great. So you have this woman, and she has her heart at the bottom right. It's the wellspring, right, of life. She's drawing life from the water of her heart. And there's Satan on the left-hand side, and he's dumping uh, uh, some garbage that's 
containing fear, doubt, and sin. He's going to dump it into the well. And she's saying, whoa, 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 stop. Hold it right there. You can't dump that garbage here. I have to drink from this well. Right? And that's, that's the idea. She's trying to guard her heart. Hey, i got to drink this water. I mean, this is, this is my life. And so we want to stand guard and make sure that our, that our hearts are a place um, where Jesus would dwell. Right? We want in our core, we want to have this abiding relationship with Jesus where we experience his love, his joy, his peace. And this passage has a lot to say about peace, right? Verse 7, the peace of God will guard your hearts. Verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. That's what we want, dwelling in our hearts. But we know that these other things come in, of course, in our hearts. This one says fear, doubt, sin. And that's what we're looking at over these three weeks is what are the, what are the threats to our hearts? How can we guard our hearts? Last week, we looked at the threat of anxiety. And we talked about what anxiety does to the heart and how we're called then to cast our cares on the Lord in constant prayer as the way to safeguard our hearts. And today, we're going to look at the issue of impurity and negativity, these thoughts that are either impure or negative that get inside and, and, and they're harmful to the, the stream of our hearts. And how do we instead practice this thought life um, that is going to be a, a way that our hearts are flourishing and a, a place where Jesus would be pleased to dwell? So that's the plan today. Um, we're going to focus entirely on verse 8. The famous statement, whatever is true and noble, all these things, to think about these things. Uh, let me just set it in the context again. At the end of verse 5, take a look at the last phrase in verse 5. Um, there's, there's a reality that I think shapes the commands in this passage. The reality is, at the end of verse 5, the Lord is near. Which either means, hey, Jesus, our Lord, he could return at any time. And he's going to set things right. And everything's going to be put back to right. So live in light of that fact. Or maybe he just means the Lord is near. He's present always. He's not out there somewhere distant. No, no, he's with you. With his power and his grace, he's available to you as your king and God, your Lord, your friend, your savior. In light of that reality, here's these commands. So rejoice in the Lord. Don't be anxious. About things, pray about them. And then our verse, verse 8, and think about these things. All right, so let's focus in on verse 8. Spend our time there. I'll talk through the verse for a couple minutes, and then I'll throw out some suggestions of how we could practically live out this verse in our world today. Let's start with the end of the verse. The command comes at the very end, at least in my translation, at the end of verse 8. It says, it gives you this list of good things, and then the command is this. Think about such things. That's the command. Think about such things. The word that he uses for think means to, to consider, to give careful attention to, to, um, to ponder. Okay? So he, he's, G, uh, Paul is having us think about our thinking. <laughs> what are the thoughts? What do you fill your mind with? What are the thoughts that are churning in you throughout your days? And he, this is a very practical question like what, what are you actually thinking about through your days when you wake up and you have those first minutes where do your thoughts go when you're driving in your car you're going to work you're running errands um, where are your thoughts going when you're at work where are your thoughts going? when you come home you have dinner and you've got that time between dinner and sleep what are you filling your mind with what are you pondering what are you giving your attention to uh, Jesus himself has a lot to say about our thoughts and what we give our attention to and how important that is. 
Uh, one passage uh, that came to mind for me is one in the Sermon on the Mount where he gives us this really interesting word picture. This is Jesus speaking. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Okay, what the heck did he just say? He's giving us a word picture saying, picture your eyes are like lamps to your body. So your eyes take in light and picture that like going through your eye and then shining into your body. Okay, you got that word picture? What you are looking at affects the rest of your body if your eyes are like a lamp. And it's a, it's a metaphor. He's, he's saying what you focus on, right? What you choose to meditate on, what you choose to actively pursue, that's going to radically affect the rest of your life. It impacts your focus, absolutely impacts the rest of your spiritual life. So what you focus on makes a big difference. Paul is telling us here the same thing. What you focus on, what you think about matters. And so he gives us this list of things that we ought to let occupy our thoughts and our minds throughout the day. Let's read through the list together, okay? Let's just sit with each one for a second. So verse 8, first part of verse 8. Let's walk through the list. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, okay? I think true appropriately begins this list because that sets the stage for the rest. Let's focus on truth because depending on what you think is true, that will shape how you think about the rest of the list. Depending on what is true will we'll shape what I think is actually lovely, what I think is actually worthy of praise, what I think is not worthy of praise. So he's grounding us in truth as the, as the front of the list. And then let me just mention the other ones. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, okay, something that has good character is noble. Whatever is right, that's the word righteous or just. Uh, whatever is pure, things that are not filled with impurity. Whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, uh, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think of such things. He gives us this list, and I would put them in, they, they always, all of them fit in at least one of two categories. Either things that are morally good and upright for us, or things that are just positive and encouraging and uplifting, or both, all right? So the opposite of this list would be things that are impure, things that are, that are, that are morally not good for us to think about, or just things that are discouraging, that are negative. I think that would be the, the general category of the list that he's giving us. Now, what struck me this week personally was, um, I hadn't really thought through this before, but there's a word in this list, there's, there's a word in this verse uh, that's a really important word. It's actually the word that shows up more than any other word. What word shows up more than any other word here? Whatever, right? Whatever, Right? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, meaning whatever <laughs> is those things. I love that Paul's not dividing the world into like spiritual things that we should think about and unspiritual things, or here's religious topics that you should think about, unreligious. No, no, no. As you look out on the world, whatever there is in the world, whatever category it fits in, if it's true, if it's good, if it's noble, it's praiseworthy, think about those things. And that's a beautiful picture. If we believe that God is the source of truth in the world, right, wherever it's found, if he's the ultimate source, well, there's a lot of true things to find in the world. If God is the, the author of goodness, right, things that are true and beautiful and good, well, then we can look out at his world and whatever there is in his world, whether it's, you know, religious or not, it is, it is something that we can fix our eyes on as, a, as an object of, that's praiseworthy, that's admirable. 
So that's the verse, pretty simple. Um, easy to say, easy to preach, hard to live, right? Oh, I just pushed a button on Joel's thing. I can't wait to see what happens. I think that's the distortion pedal. It's going to be rocking. Um, maybe a digital delay or, you know, get some U2 going. I don't know what just happened there. Um, all right. So how do we live this out? We've all heard this. Many of us have heard this before. How do we live this out? I, I want to say um, negatively, we need, a def- we need a good defense, right? We need to prevent certain kinds of things from filling our minds. And then positively, really what Paul focused on, we want a good offense. We want to proactively pursue the things that are going to lead to these things, all right? So I want to talk briefly about defense, and I want to talk mainly about offense. All right, so I think defensively, negatively, I want to point out one thing. That would be, it's low-hanging fruit. It's an easy one to point out, but I think it's important. Um, I think this verse absolutely challenges us in our practices of entertainment watching. Okay? What we watch on TV, uh, what we watch at movies, what we're streaming online. Uh, This verse absolutely calls us to take a good long look at what we are taking in on a regular basis and sift it through. Is this really, does this meet any of this list. And there are definitely, there's a whole variety of shows, right? Some that are very, I think, uplifting and encouraging and really good and some that are not. But I think if you just took what the general American public is watching every night, just take it as one big bundle and you compared it to this list, I think you'd find that 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 bundle falls woefully short of this list and oftentimes is in direct contradiction to this list where people are watching things that are actually not true according to God's word, and uh, not worthy of praise. Things that are, we're, we're laughing at or celebrating that we actually should be grieving over or mourning over. So I, I think this, this passage really in, invites us to take a good long look at that. I was reading a, uh, a Nielsen report from 2016 this week. Uh, the average American adult, 18 and older, watches four hours of TV a night. Okay, which gets us to almost 30 hours a week, which gets us to, really, we're, we're moving towards another full-time job, you know, almost, of, of just watching TV. And in light of, you know, what generally we're watching, okay, if you're watching 30 hours of TV a week, I promise you, you are losing the battle for the mind. That is not a spiritual statement, that's basic math, okay? You're watching 30 hours a week, that you're losing the battle for the Christian mind, uh, uh, Unless you're, um, I don't know, watching TV of some guy reading scripture the whole time or something like that. Um, so I, I think this, this verse, in, this, it challenges us to reconsider our, our entertainment practices in, in two ways. One, I think it calls us to reconsider just to, to limit the amount of time that we are watching things. To limit the amount of time our kids are watching things. To try to replace that time with activities that are much more refreshing, soul um, you know, refreshing and kind of joy producing rather than just um, mind numbing activities. Um, reading good literature, going for walks, getting outside, having conversation with each other. So I think it, it, it calls us to limit our time. And then secondly, I think it, and what I really want to focus on, it really calls us to, to limit the kinds of things that we're choosing to watch in that time. And I think we just, we need a different filter on what we allow ourselves to watch. And my experience is that there's so many Christians who, um, in the name of liberty, Christian liberty, and we do have liberty, but in the name of liberty, will let just about anything into their minds and, and will watch things that are absolutely harmful to our spiritual lives. They're absolutely counterproductive to our spiritual lives. 
And so I want to encourage us, um, rather than use like liberty, let liberty and freedom be the, the, the filter that we use, um, I think we're called to a different filter, and it would be the filter of love. That Jesus said, you know, the Jesus life is ultimately about love. Jesus said the greatest commandment is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what if we just took that filter of love and, and, and ran our TV, internet viewing through that, okay? Love of God. God, if I, is, is me consistently watching this show, is this going to turn me into a person who loves you more over time? Is this going to be, turn me into a person who loves the things that you love over time? Is this going to give me a greater and greater hunger and thirst in my pursuit of you? Is this going to create in my mind a home that you would be pleased to dwell in? Let love be the filter. And also, not just love of God, but let love of neighbor be the filter. Okay? It is me watching, is this going to turn me into a person who loves others and encourages them more and more? And this was the interesting one for me this week. Because when I think about my own like viewing or so many things, I'm just thinking about like, hey, this is, this is an issue between me and God. This doesn't have to do with you. This is, this is my deal. Right? I've got to decide between God what I'm going to watch, what I'm not going to watch. And in light of what Mark said earlier about that we're the body of Christ, um, that's just not true. That, that what I watch absolutely affects you, and what you watch absolutely affects me, because we're part of this body. What you're regularly watching will absolutely affect the kinds of conversations you want to have on the patio right after church. It absolutely does. What you choose to watch will normalize... For the rest of us, what's an appropriate thing to watch, right? If you've got a bunch of Christians watching these things, then all of a sudden the church says, I guess, I guess that's what Christians watch. I guess it's okay to do that. And so I think, again, the lens is not be a good boy, be a good girl. You know, what's the, what's the right wrong? No, the, the lens is love. Is this going to shape me into a more loving person? Let's let that be the filter that we use in terms of what we take in. And like I said, there's some great, things out there to watch. There's some very encouraging, uplifting, truth-speaking things. So um, that's the defense. I felt like that was important to say in case you ever wondered where I stood on the topic. Um, I think we've really um, normalized a lot of things that should not be normal in the Christian community. And I think if we just ask ourselves, is this actually making us more loving people? Is this facilitating our life with God? I think the honest answer is, for the most part, absolutely not. There are much better alternatives to this. Um, to spend our time. All right, so that's the, that's the defense. And we could come up with a bunch of other things. That was the low-hanging fruit that I wanted to focus on. Paul doesn't give a defense. His is an entirely positive uh, passage. So I, I want to spend the rest of our time fixing our thoughts. of What are the, all the good things that we can fill our minds with? How can we faithfully follow through on what Paul's encouraging us to? All right, so I'm going to give you a, a quick list and then we're going to spend some time worshiping at the end and fixing our minds on the greatest thing of all, God. So here are some, some positive inputs. Again, this is stuff you could come up with on your own, but I get paid to do it, so I get to do it today. Um, I, I want to start with three kind of classic Christian inputs that have always served Christians well at all times. Uh, the first one, obviously, is reading Scripture itself. I think this passage is a call to each one of us to ask ourselves, what is my regular relationship with the Word of God? Do I have a way of 
daily immersing myself in his scriptures because I am always going to find in here things that are true and lovely and praiseworthy and good. I'm going to be reminded of God and his character, his holiness, his love, his faithfulness, his grace, his forgiveness. I'm going to be reminded of his great acts of salvation throughout history. I'm going to be reminded of his promises to his people that he loves us and he promises to to take care of us and be with us and give us eternal life. So there's so many good things that I'm going to get from this. So I think the the obvious one here is is a daily immersion in Scripture. And here's the great thing today. Um, Immersing yourself in Scripture is in some ways easier today than it's ever been. Every one of us can have one of these. There were centuries where the average Christian could not have one of these. Uh, And if you don't want one of these, you can have it on your phone. And if you don't want to read it, you can listen to someone with a great British accent reading it to you in your car, okay? There's so many great ways, and I think the... um, the way is not as important as the practice. Just say, I want, I want to be in Scripture. I want the truths to shape how I view the rest of life. I want to be encouraged by Scripture daily. So if all you took from this is, I want to, I want to have a more faithful time in the Word, I would be super stoked on that. Uh, two others that I'll just mention. Uh, music has been historically a great way to fill our minds I mean, it can be a way to fill our minds with bad things, but it can be a, a way to fill our minds with great things, with good songs that are uplifting, that certainly worship songs. And the great thing about music is, is it gets inside of you, right? Like right now I have lots of six-year-old girl songs just <laughs> going in, inside of me all day long. I have three daughters, if you don't know me. Um, and I can't really get them out of my mind. And um, the great thing is you can, you can use that for good. Uh, and, and find things that, you know, you're, they just kind of keep going, right? And so music has always been a great way um, to fix our, our thoughts on, on the good. Uh, and then one other, and of course, you can always step out into God's creation, into nature. Uh, and no matter what is happening in the circumstances of your life, nature doesn't care about any of that. It will always be beautiful. It will always be interesting and amazing. And you'll always have evidence of the creator and his goodness and um, just stepping into the senses of creation. So those are, those are three that have always served Christians well. And then what I want to do is um, I want to end with two more, uh, kind of a, using this list as a lens that we see things through. And I want to address um, those of you in the room who uh, would identify as glass half-empty people. Okay, So I ended last week kind of addressing those of us who struggle with anxiety. And I, I want to... Those of you that just find yourself leaning towards the half-empty, um, you know, we could divide the room into the half-full people, the half-empty people. Um, some people are like, oh, I'm not a pessimist or an optimist. I'm a realist, right? But you don't get to, you have to, like, choose a category. <laughs> I, I, would, I would, by default, myself, I, in, I land in the half-empty uh, area. My guess is the half-empty ones also comprise most of the uh, anxiety warriors in the room, <laughs> too. So there's probably some sermon there about that. Um, but especially if you find yourself a half-empty person, like myself, um, I think two more that I want to say is, is, one is, what would it look like to, to run your life through the grid of this list in two ways? What would it look like to um, let, let this list be the lens that you view your circumstances through, okay? So as circumstances happen to you, this is the lens that I'm going to view them. This is what I'm going to choose to focus on in my circumstances. Now, the reality is life throws you all kinds of circumstances. Some are good, some are bad. Some are true, some are untrue, some are lovely, some are not so lovely. But what if 
I practice whatever I'm going through, whatever variety of things I'm going through, I'm going to, in terms of the practice of my heart and mind, I'm going to fix my mind on the things in my circumstances that are in line with this list. And there's probably always things in your circumstances that you can say, this is hard, but yes, there are things in this that are noble, that are lovely, that are true, right? That are praiseworthy. And I'm going to choose to focus on those. I want to take you back to uh, chapter 1 for a second. If you would, if you have your Bibles, turn back to chapter 1, verse 12. Paul models viewing his circumstances um, through, uh, through the lens of what is right and good about it. Let me, let me read verse 12. Where's Paul, by the way, in this, when he writes this? He's in prison, right? Not great. He's, he's got rough circumstances. But watch how he views his circumstances through this lens. Verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, meaning I've been imprisoned, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So he's saying, yeah, I'm in prison, but here's the great thing. Everyone knows why I'm in prison, because I'm, I'm here for Jesus. And my boldness is encouraging other believers in their boldness outside of prison to share the gospel. Now he goes on, verse 15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of good will. So some of these people are preaching now that Paul's in prison. They're like, oh, I can promote my ministry now that the good, great Paul is stuck in jail and my ministry can, can get even better. So they're preaching the gospel with really bad motives, but they're still preaching the gospel, right? The latter people do it out of love. Verse 17, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in, in change. All these different motives. Verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. That's a pretty impressive model, right? I'm in prison. There's other people trying to stick it to me in prison by preaching the gospel. But hey, here's what I can focus on. The gospel is being preached. That's true, and that's good, and that's praiseworthy. And so I'm rejoicing in the midst of very challenging circumstances. So I think especially for us half-empty folks, what would it look like to say, you know what? I'm going to acknowledge the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going to grieve the bad and the ugly. I'm going to process it. But in terms of where my mind goes, I'm going to make a a habit of the heart and mind to fix my mind on the things in my circumstances that are positive, that are encouraging, that are uplifting, that are true, that are praiseworthy. And then finally, um, another lens, and this is maybe the one I I most want to say. Um, What if we use this as a lens to view people through? Um, meaning, what if, as we looked at it, people, we were always looking for, what about this person is true and noble and right and good and lovely and praiseworthy? Um, those of you who are married, okay, best marriage advice I'll ever have. What if we viewed our spouses through this lens? Right? Like, really, but like, what if, what if we stopped viewing our, our spouses through the ways they frustrate us and annoy us or fall short of our expectations and, and us, them? And what if we said, I'm always going to be looking for the good and the true and the praiseworthy and the virtuous and the noble in my spouse? How good would that be? 
I mean, if you've been married for a while, like you're, you're stuck with your spouse at this point, right? And you know how much or how little you can change him or her at this point, right? You kind of know what reality is. So why not focus on all the good in them? Why not do that? So my, my wife's birthday was, was this week. And so I had a chance to think about her and to, you know, write some things down as a way of affirming her. And here's the beautiful thing. I like my spouse more um, after doing that, turns out. Like affirming her is not just good for her. It's good for me. Oh, yeah, my wife rocks. She's great. I forget that, or I take it for granted from time to time. And what if we did that in our marriages? I mean, I, honestly, I feel like that would, like, the divorce rate would go down in half if we just said, I'm going to focus. There are always good things about my spouse. I'm going to focus on that. That's where I'm going to fix my mind. Yes, we have to work through our issues. Yes, we have to acknowledge the pain, and we have to work through that. But in terms of my habit of heart and mind, that's what I'm going to spend my time focusing on. Man, I feel like that would be pretty good. Um, what if we um, took this list to one another in the church community? What if we stepped into the church and said, you know what, I'm going to view these people through this list. Yes, of course I know they're broken. I know they're partly dysfunctional and they have, they're messy in their lives. Or that. But I'm going to come in here and look for what do I see that is good and right and true and noble in them. And that's what I'm going to spend my time focusing on in them. Uh, in Axios, uh, our men's uh, discipleship ministry, a couple weeks ago, we were uh, studying Barnabas, the life of Barnabas uh, in, in the book of Acts. And uh, his, his given name was Joseph, but his buddies re-nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he was a guy that just would find the good in people, and he'd speak it out, and he was, he was an encourager. And we were reading this commentary, and there was, a, there was a little comment in there that just really struck me. Uh, look at this image. Said, not everyone can see the tokens of God's grace in the lives of other people. But Barnabas saw living embers of grace that he wanted to fan into flame, where others saw only the ashes of imperfection. I thought, what a great image. And I love fires, so he had me at fires. Um, <laughs> but, like, if, if people are fires, it, it's so easy to see the ashes of imperfection, right? Here's all the ways that you're messed up. But he's like, Barnabas looked for the embers of God's grace. And in some people, you see a raging fire of God's grace and all this goodness. Some people, you only see just a, a little ember. But what does it look like to, to approach the church community? I'm looking for the embers. I'm looking for evidence of God's grace at work in this person. I want to I focus on that. I want to fan it into flame. I want to speak into that as much as I can. I feel like a lot of our church problems would be solved if we approached one another with that lens. And then finally, uh, what if we not just did this with our spouses, with ourselves within the church community, but what if we, we offered this same lens and, and we, we took this same lens to the people out in the world? Okay, I'm thinking of our neighbors and our, our coworkers, the people we see around town, this world in general. Because the reality is, is the embers of God's grace are out there too, right? God's grace is at work all around us, um, whether these people are Christians or not. God is at work in the world. Uh, this is what theo theologians call God's common grace. God's common grace is the grace that he offers. Um, it's common to everybody, right? The rain falls on the, the good and the bad. The crops grow for the good and the bad. And, and God's common grace is active in the world. Normally in church, we talk about God's saving grace, right? The grace of God that moves in a person, brings them to faith in Jesus. And so they, they commit their lives, they're saved, and they start pursuing Jesus. That's God's saving grace. That's mainly what scripture talks about. Um, 
But there's also God's common grace. It's common to all. Again, Paul says, whatever, whatever is true, whatever is no, whether it falls in line with your little church community or not. And if we believe, like I said, if we believe that God is the author of all goodness and beauty and, and faith in the world, then there's a lot to celebrate. I want to read another um, uh, little passage, will be my last little reading, again from an Axios lesson, uh, where the authors are encouraging this kind of looking out for the embers of, of God's work in the world, in the larger world, and celebrating. He says, we as Christians, we should be the very best at, what, at, at spotting what's good in the world. Our taste for goodness should be so well cultivated that whenever orderly, whenever, that's sort of the whatever, whenever orderly, right, abundant, generous, and flourishing work is on display, we call it out and we support it and we encourage it, even if it doesn't come from a Christian. And herein lies our problem. Many Christians are inclined to believe we should celebrate only good things labeled Christian or we should celebrate only good work that results in conversions or personal salvation. This view reflects an underdeveloped theology of God's common grace. Celebrating and cultivating anything and everything that is good and right is part of our call as Christians, even when that goodness is springing from someone other than a Christian. Too often, when a non-Christian solves a great injustice, produces a great work of art, or helps people overcome evil, we silently think it's interesting, but we're careful not to celebrate it. Why? Do we fear God isn't getting the credit so we don't want to add our voice to it? And then I love this. He says, finding goodness in the world around us opens doors and begins relationships. Consider your own neighborhood, your own school, your own city. Who are the unsung heroes working in your community to do good? Find and celebrate them. Who is working for justice so people can flourish? Who is caring for those with special needs or coaching the peewee baseball, hockey, or football league? Pat them on the back. Send them a note of encouragement. That's Barnabas. And thank them for the good they do. In an age of selfishness and self-infatuation, their lives stand in stark contrast to to the prevailing ethos and they help others see a better way. I thought that's a great posture. Christians should be the first at celebrating what's good and right and orderly in the world. And I was thinking, um, especially in this time where Christians are so often known for what they're against in the culture, and there are things that we're against, but so how good would it be for, for that part of it to be set in the context of all the things that we're for, all the ways that we celebrate um, good things that are happening in the world, that we can spot it and see and say, yes, that is beautiful, that is true, that is good, that is noble, that is worthy of praise. And so I, I was just thinking for me personally, that's a helpful lens to put on my interactions with the world. A lot of times I have the lens of looking through the world through, through the lens of sin and brokenness, um, which is an appropriate lens to look at the world through. But I think it's also helpful from time to time to look at the world through the lens of God's common grace, and through these people who all bear his image, even if they don't know him. And that's, that's so often a better posture that's going to help me engage people and, and have a starting point of conversation with them and, and mutual sharing of certain values with them. So there you have it. In this, in this world we're living in right now that is full of negativity, <laughs> so much anger, so much uh, fear, so much impurity, Um, we have this opportunity to be these refreshingly positive and encouraging and uplifting people. And one of the ways we do that is we pursue our own minds by fixing them on these things that are true and good and uplifting and right and praiseworthy. Because in the end, we are the ones who have to drink from that well all day long. (laughs) 
and others have to drink from it too. So let's pursue those things. Let's pray. Uh, let's take a, a minute, uh, well, I'll just give you time in silence to, to do business with God as you've thought about this verse. And my encouragement would be to offer this up in prayer to the Lord and ask, is there one thing, is, is there one thing that you are feeling led to do? It may be something that you need to stop doing, uh, or it may be something you need to pursue more intentionally, but but just take some time of prayer with the Lord. Lord, is it what's the what's the one thing, the most important thing that you want me to take away and maybe actually put into practice this week? Why don't you sit with that, and then we'll spend some time in worship, fixing our hearts and minds on the Lord and His goodness.